welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. We're back, baby! I'm your host, as usually, Mitchell Farley-Wolf. And also, as usually, I'm joined by the editor-in-chief of Super Jump Magazine, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. I'm, I'm back in the real world, sadly. <laughs> yeah, you spent uh, the last couple weeks in, in Japan, and uh, before the show started you said that that was amazing but uh i can you give us any details for the recorded audience how how do how do you feel about japan do you feel like any like anything really surprised you anything was was much different than you were imagining it um not really and that's kind of the weird thing i mean i think i said i wrote an article well i i wouldn't you know wrote in air quotes i spat out an article we all do While it. I was there <laughs> about um, Hiroshima, uh, that was the first kind of major place that I visited there. And, um, you know, one of the things I said was that um, for a lot of people in Western countries, especially people who grew up with games and anime and that sort of thing, um, you know, Japan is kind of this mystical holy grail, I think, for a lot of people. And we we consume so much media that kind of uh you know that was created in japan or that relates to japan in some way so you before you even go you know you build up this huge set of impressions about what you think it's going to be and it largely is those things which is kind of interesting yeah wow Uh, because i think that's often not the case when you travel um the, the only thing I'd say about it that was maybe a little different is Japan's always had this big reputation for being sort of very futuristic and advanced in, in a lot of respects. And it's, I think that was probably true like in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> like it was futuristic in the 80s. But when you go there now, I mean, there are some things that are a little bit um, kind of futuristic, but it's it's not really... In some ways, it's actually kind of quaintly retro in, in a lot of respects. Um, there were some things I was a little bit surprised about in terms of, oh, there are countries that still do this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, my, my impression of Japan as someone who's never been there and... Uh, for, for someone in our field, I guess, I have a, a weirdly lacking uh, sense of knowledge about what goes on there. Tokyo seems like it is very futuristic and very modern and huge and, and big city and like rival to New York and everything. But pretty much everywhere else in the country, it seems very rural and very old fashioned. Is that mm. is, is that accurate to what you've seen? Um, well, Tokyo is definitely just in terms of scale, it's far bigger than anything else I saw, um, in just in terms of sheer size and number of people and everything. Um, but the most modern city was probably Osaka. Oh, okay. Um, Osaka felt much, much more modern and advanced than Tokyo. Wow. And much more, much more of that, like stereotypical, you know, you're walking along a street full of skyscrapers that are all covered in neon. And that was much more Osaka in my mind than Tokyo. Um, and Hiroshima is, is a lot more modern than Tokyo, I guess, just largely because it was 
rebuilt after the war from scratch. That so makes sense. It's by definition, it's more modern. Um, uh, Kyoto is is gorgeous, um, and and still very very old, uh, still very well preserved and like a very kind of flat sprawling city. Not as many tall buildings. Um, so each part of the country is quite different. Like each each city has its own very unique kind of character and architecture and culture. That um, that that kind of makes me think about how in America people looking for like the latest and greatest in like the big cities would probably if if you're not familiar with american cities you might think los angeles chicago or new york but Mm. in those cases those are kind of run down because everyone thinks that so some of the more modern cities in in the country are maybe seattle san diego Mm. and and uh, austin texas maybe uh yeah so it's interesting how that how that goes uh so man i i wish i could go because and another thing i think about when i think of japan is just like when in in the summer of 2016 when everyone got really into pokemon for a second and i felt like wow pokemon go kind of just made this thing that i've liked a long time and i know a lot of other people in my in my age group and like my surroundings have also liked now it's Mm -hmm. it seems not only pretty mainstream but like it is the most mainstream thing that there is right now it's bigger than any tv show it's bigger than any Mm. like book uh and my impression of japan is that they like do that way more often for a lot more video games and it's just regular that it's part of the culture where like someone in their 40s will just be like yeah i remember chrono trigger it was like a big cultural milestone for everyone yes (laughs) like yeah. yeah oh that that's definitely true just from the little bit i saw like um there were two examples like and and one of them is kind of my playtime report thing but i'll mention it now instead um oh, okay well hang on Pokemon. hang on hang on hang yeah. on okay let's head into the playtime <laughs> report now we're here <laughs> i did it cool okay i'm safe now <laughs> um yeah, I so I as you know and as I've said on this show before, I I've never been a, a really a huge Pokemon fan in general and I played a little bit of Pokemon Go when it first came out, but I was a little bit I think I was a bit turned off by you know, when it launched it was pretty bare bones obviously. Right. Um and it and it was quite sort of unstable and all the rest of it and so I played it for a little bit along with every other person in the country and then I kind of just um, let it go by the wayside. But Japan got me back into Pokemon Go because, one, I was walking an insane amount in Japan. And that's oh, yeah. one thing I yeah, have to sense. say. You just, you walk everywhere. So like, and and I've, I've been tracking my my distance on my phone and everything i was walking on average this is conservative mind you 100 kilometers per week which is 62 miles wow yeah um so the last couple of days when i've been home in australia has been letting my feet recover (laughs) i think they nearly fell off um but it was a good opportunity to kind of have pokemon go um you know playing through that as I was walking around. And 
one of the really interesting things is I did my first raid, my first Pokemon Go raid in Akihabara in Tokyo, which is the, you know, the big electronics and gaming kind of district of Tokyo. And right. it was just, it was funny because like you'd see, you'd be walking around the city and you'd see this line of like 20 or 30 people all in suits on a work day or just after work had finished standing in this neat little row along the sidewalk, all looking at their phones. And at first I'm thinking, oh, are they waiting for a bus or like, what are they doing? And as I passed them, I noticed they were all playing Pokemon. (laughs) So I just joined the line and looked at Pokemon. (laughs) I I can imagine you just filtering filtering yourself in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hoping that that people don't realize you're a tourist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just kind of sashayed <laughs> in there and um, looked down at, you know, open Pokemon Go and there was a raid about to happen right in that spot. And it was just hilarious because like, you know how there's the little indicator that tells you how many people have joined? Right. It was it was going nuts. It was just like, it was ticking up so fast because all of these people were joining this raid and i think we i think we beat the raid in like i don't know 10 seconds or wow. 20 seconds wow. or something it was ridiculous um and i noticed that in a few places in around tokyo so it's definitely seems to be pretty popular pokemon go specifically um and of course pokemon itself is like is just ubiquitous in japan from a kind of from a uh, i guess you'd call it a cultural standpoint like not so much the games as such but almost like hello kitty or something it's kind of you know there's a lot of pokemon themed merchandise and there's obviously pokemon centers everywhere um but there are a lot of stores that will be carrying like homewares that will also have pokemon products well, yeah <laughs> You were you were you were saying uh, some stuff about about that on the on the Discord on the Super Jump Discord where you were talking about you were just going into like a store like a hardware store or like a like a restaurant or something and there would just be Nintendo merchandise or like Dragon yeah. Quest stuff just all over yes. the place <laughs> and it's really good like it's not it's not like. Um... It's not like really sort of cheap, crappy merchandise where, you know, Mario kind of looks smudged and, you know, like something really cheap and nasty. It's all really, really good quality. Um, There was a, there was a, there's a chain of stores there in particular called Loft, which is, I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's kind of like, it's a big chain and it's kind of like, homewares and artwork and books and calendars and things like that um and all of the loft stores have a dedicated random nintendo section merchandise section um one loft store i went to in tokyo had a they had like a big travel department with luggage and that sort of thing and they had one huge area that was all nintendo themed luggage and like travel accessories um so that was something i found interesting like i think nintendo in particular is sort of a 
that that you can kind of see that they're sort of regarded as a bit of a national treasure in in Japan. Um, they're not just like another gaming company. They they're kind of their characters um, are sort of everywhere in in a lot of places you don't expect to see them i imagine they're they're regarded a lot of the same way um well in in my example people in southern california talk about disney um yeah especially being close to hollywood and close to uh the first disneyland and everything um yeah i definitely that makes a lot of sense um and and just it's not pokemon or nintendo related but one thing i found really weird was I went to the Tokyo Skytree uh, and, you know, you, you know, you go to the top of this massive tower. I think you're on the, you're on the 450th floor is where the observation deck is. So you can see all of Tokyo and Mount Fuji in the distance. It's really spectacular. Um, you go to the top and when you get to the top, they were playing this music in the background that I recognized. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, what's this theme song? Turns out that the whole top of Skytree was, they had turned it into like a Kingdom Hearts museum. Whoa. <laughs> um, and they were, and, and I'm not sure how this works, like whether Square Enix is um, like sponsoring Skytree for... A period of time i think this run, might run until march or something but they basically had kingdom hearts music playing all through skytree they had all these different artifacts in behind glass like um like what would you call them like some of them were some of them look like artifacts from the developers like um like behind the scenes stuff know, sketches and yeah like things that they were using to design the game. Um, okay. They had models okay. of different weapons from the game. They had a little Kingdom Hearts. I don't really know what you'd call it. It's not an arcade game. It's just sort of like a little amusement thing experience. Um, now, was this... Could you tell if this was in preparation for Kingdom Hearts 3 or was this just like a Tuesday? <laughs> like... Uh-huh. No, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Th- this was Kingdom Hearts 3. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, which they're promoting heavily across Japan. Um, but it was, it, I just found it really interesting because even the, they even had a Kingdom Hearts shop in the um, like observation area in Skytree at the top. Um, and it was, it was really strange because that's not really something that would happen in Australia. Like if you, if you had a big, um tourist attraction like a big monument or a big museum or i'm trying to think of an example like the the sydney tower or something like that um i mean i'm sure they get sponsorships and that sort of thing but i don't think you would ever see them just like deck out the whole building based on a video game or based on a film Um, no never it was really over the top. It was really good fun, but it was like, yeah, they, they do a lot of that in Japan, that kind of sponsorship. Huh. That's so cool. <laughs> well, because we're in the playtime report, I'm going to have to ask you about hole down. What is that? Mm. You've written the words hole and down 
on my Google document and I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, I'm a bit late to the party on this one. This is a mobile game. Oh, well, I guess I'm very I, and... late to it then. <laughs> I, I'm kind of amazed that this playtime report, I have two mobile games. I like hell must have frozen over somewhere. Yeah, I have um, one too. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but hold down i think it came out earlier in 2018 um it's it's a little indie game it's a puzzle game and the way i would describe it is it's at least on paper it's not doing anything sort of massively different or innovative but it's just incredibly polished and uh sort of whimsical in in the way it's presented um basically it's a really simple puzzle game where um, your goal is to break blocks to dig to the core of like planets and asteroids and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and you're doing that by, there's a ball at the top of the screen. You kind of like um, drag your finger around the screen to aim the ball. You let go, you kind of hold and release. Ball flies off and, you know, it, it bounces around the screen. It hits the blocks at different angles and your goal is to break the blocks really really simple um, i'm looking at a a trailer of it right now and i'm, I'm yeah. seeing it, it looks almost like a like an upside down tetris where um obstacles are coming up from the bottom and yes mix that with breakout i suppose yeah that that's a good description it's kind of like a hybrid of of the two um because every turn you take you're, you'll move kind of deeper into the level. So the bricks will move up toward like a line at the top. And of course, if any of the bricks touch that line, it's game over. Um, so as you play, you know, it's it's this really mega simple concept. But as you play, you there's a couple of things that make it more interesting. One is you have different ways of upgrading your capabilities. So you'll get um, you'll get more shots, you'll get more balls that you can use. Um, you know, there'll be different kind of upgrades you can get to, to make things a bit easier as you go. Um, but also to destroy a block, like every block has a number on it. That's the number of times it needs to be hit to disappear. But you'll have blocks that are like nailed or fixed in place. And they'll often have a really high number on them often kind of too high for you to possibly break them, you know, through normal means. So with those blocks, um, you have to, the goal is that you've got to kind of break the supporting blocks underneath them to make them disappear. And there's all sorts of like little techniques that you'll learn as you play just around like, um, you know, the angle of the ball and how you can get multiple shots by aiming your first shot correctly. Um, it's, again, really simple, but really, really satisfying. And I found myself playing this. I, I downloaded it while I was in Japan and played it, like got through the whole game while I was in Japan and I'm still playing it now. It's a really, really good little game like to play on the train or cool. if you're waiting in line for something, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that sounds really cool. I, I'm looking for a lot of, um, I guess, idle game. Not idle games because that's a specific genre. I, um, more passive games to play. And, and this looks yeah. like it could be a, a good example of that. I'll have to try that one out. 
for next episode and i'll i'll report back to you and see what i think about it um cool now here's another game that i've been playing on my phone though or here's one game i've been playing on my phone in addition to <laughs> your games you've been playing on your phone we don't yet share a phone uh the two of us but you know maybe <laughs> i feel like we're becoming better friends maybe someday um i've been playing dragon quest um just the first dragon quest the nes game dragon quest well the famicom game dragon quest the nes game dragon warrior i mm. have never played a dragon quest game before and ah, starting yeah. with like the the super old old school classic dragon quest is probably not what modern dragon quest fans would want me to do um because <laughs> it it has all the trappings of a game that was made in 1986 um mm. you you've you've probably heard from a lot of people that it invented the the jrpg genre and i don't know if it was like literally the first but yeah there's some stuff here that later rpgs kind of figured out that dragon quest hasn't yet understood but there's it, it's so impressive to me how much they got mm. right on the first time and it, it kind of makes sense to me how it, it now makes like a lot of sense to me why dragon quest became so popular just on the first on the first go uh yeah. there there's like a full story in in an era where where like it came out before Zelda before Zelda came out and mm -hmm. Zelda certainly doesn't have a, a story it has like a, a prologue that you read and then you see a little tiny animation of, of like Zelda being rescued at the end and and this yeah. one has just dialogue I'm talking to people there's NPCs all over the place uh the storylines kind of make sense um the the world is is large but it actually only takes me maybe 3 minutes to walk from one end of it to the other so mm -hmm. you 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 can do pretty much anything in any given time it feels so open and that's so not what i was expecting yeah like the, there there's some uh I, it looks like we're going to be talking about breath of the wild here in a second um because you've you've been playing it and there's there were some like comparisons to that game that I, I recognized immediately. Like, you can go anywhere on the map in Dragon Quest immediately, except for the final mm. area. Uh, like, just the final boss is walled off until you do something special, but every other thing in the game you can walk to immediately. Um, you, won't, you won't survive there because you will be killed by any random uh, monster you encounter. But you can you can just go yeah. anywhere at all, and um, it, I'm I'm really impressed for for a, a mid '80s RPG to have come out so fully furnished. Uh, like I, yeah. I I I had heard you know through my whole life like hey there's this like big game to Nintendo fans in in the East called Dragon Quest that. You, you and your friends don't really care about it at all, but, like, it's the biggest, it's the best-selling game series in Japan. The number one. Yeah. It sells more than Pokemon, sells more than Mario. And uh, I kind of get it now. I, I don't know if, if it's, like, <laughs> a, a great experience in and of itself, but it's so impressive what they were able to do um, in, so early. 
Yeah, and it's. I think it actually is good that you're that you're diving straight into that because I've I've never played. I think my first Dragon Quest game was oh, I can't remember what number it was. It might have been Dragon Quest Eight. I think it was on PS Two. Uh, so um, apparently eight was like the first one that really was big internationally. So that would make sense. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I never played any of the, the older games. Um, and I'm actually like my, my playtime report games at the moment are a little bit odd in part because I think they're sort of, they kind of represent a hiatus from my normal, like the games I was playing before I went overseas. Um, you know, that, especially the games I couldn't take with me on PS4 and that sort of thing. Um, but I I did start before Christmas, I did start playing Dragon Quest Eleven on PS4, which I'm now only now kind of getting back into. Um, and it's just interesting that, you know, again, I I don't think necessarily that there's anything really revolutionary happening here. It's just that, everything they do is just so carefully kind of put together, you know, and, yeah. and so carefully considered and, and um, highly polished. That's kind of the appeal of it, or that seems to be the appeal of it. It, it, it. It's built so just this first game is built so solidly, even if there's not much mm. in it, like there's really, there is one critical dungeon you need to do in the middle of the game Mm -hmm. you need to fight one boss in the middle of the game and then kind of put the what you got from those two things together you can do those in any order order as well put what you got from those together and then you unlock the final part of the game and then on top of those three plot critical things there's like maybe two other things to do for real um i started Mm -hmm. playing it let's see 11 30 p.m last night um it's Mm -hmm. only it's not even 5 30 p.m today and i don't feel like i'm rushing through it super fast i'm almost done um it's it it's maybe an eight hour game altogether and it was three dollars american on the android store the apple or the 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 google play store so Mm -hmm. i i thought that was that was just kind of a steal for a game that i i've heard so much about for so long and i would i would recommend it it it's visuals are updated apparently there was a game boy color game once upon a time and the um the the visuals for the phone game are like an updated version of those game boy color sprites and Mm. the there has been a new translation in the mobile port like the entire script is relocalized which oh, cool. uh, is cool because I, I was comparing the mobile version of the game to the original version of the game on- online as I was going through it. And I was reading some of like, okay, what does this person say there? Because in the mobile game that I'm playing, it- it's pretty clear. There's like, wow, my, my husband, he went down to uh, Rimmelgard or whatever. The- <laughs> I'm never going to remember any town name ever. <laughs> but my, my husband went to Rimmelgard. <laughs> Because uh, he wanted to buy some some keys from a, a master keysmith that works down there, and I haven't seen him back. And as as a wife, I'm worried, and I'm kind of mad at him for going. 
And that's like a whole narrative thing. And it also gives you information of like, okay, I know where keys are now. And I, Rimmelgard is to the south because she said that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's like such a concise, well-written, if pretty obvious um, RPG thing to say. And mm-hmm. if you go back and look at the original English localization, it's kind of Zelda 1. <laughs> Uh, yeah. like Zelda one asks, it's like, be there secrets, many search travel, you? And, like, okay, oh I don't gosh. know what to do with that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, and, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really awesome, especially for a game where, you know, like, uh, playing a game that old today, in today's context, means that, you know, for the most part, you're it's leaving a lot to your imagination, right? You know, your, your, your imagination's doing a big part of the heavy lifting in terms of the world building and the story and everything. Right, yeah. So it's great that they kind of put time into that. It, that, that sounds really good. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Apparently there's a modern standard for how to localize a Dragon Quest game because the same monsters and the same... Um, not every character, but some characters do come up in, in other games. So mm-hmm. it looks like they really wanted to just take the original game. And I don't know if they finally did it or if this was the Game Boy Color port from like 20 years ago or whatever. Um, but they managed to put that modern translation and modern standard for the things in this game. Um... So, so that was that was pretty cool too. I, I I'm really liking it. It's a really cool little game. I love how simple it is because I think if there were more towns, more than like the five that there are, and if there were more characters uh, to remember the names of, and if the quest line had eight McGuffins instead of like one, um, mm. it I don't know how how excited i would have been to like say oh hey this old game i can i can look through that and i know mm-hmm. dragon quest 2 and 3 also famicom games and uh much bigger they, they're much bigger than dragon quest 1 i i don't know how i'd feel about them because they would be as old and as obtuse in certain ways as dragon quest 1 but then just like a lot more to get through um yeah but i am interested in trying them and uh, i'm interested and in, in seeing if I can finish this game, maybe I'll just keep going just through the series chronologically. It, I mean, that'd be a lot. Yeah, <laughs> <cool>. <laughs> I, I may, I may not. I probably won't, <laughs> but I, I might do some. But yeah, and you know, you can. You don't have to sort of have a time limit, so you know, you can you can just do it, chip away at it bit by bit over time. Yeah, the rumor out there is that um, Erdrick who is the hero character of Dragon Quest 3 is possibly going to be one of these Smash Brothers DLC characters. So that was kind mm. of like the, the 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 beginning of me saying, "Okay, I've kind of put off learning about this series for too long. It's clearly important. Uh, I'll I'll check it out." And yeah. Cuz cuz part of that was just like this guy named Erdrick really like wouldn't a slime be more iconic or something? Or maybe Chrono or Sora from other notable Square Enix series. But as soon as I started Dragon Quest 1, like within two seconds, they describe you as the descendant of Erdrick. Uh, so all of Dragon Quest yeah, 1 is like about collecting Erdrick's stuff and proving that you're his descendant. 
and then using his de- mm-hmm. his stuff to defeat evil the same way he did um, before. And then Dragon Quest Three is like actually getting to see that story, and that's pretty cool. That's a that's a cool little thing. I I can totally imagine now why uh, at, at least from a Japanese perspective, Erdrick would seem like the clear choice for yeah. Super Smash Brothers. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, but you're playing Breath of the Wild again. Is it, it, is this like your third or fourth go through? <laughs> um, well, it really, it's my second. Oh, okay. Um, but I, yeah, I and and look, I don't know. I, I was in this weird hiatusy state with gaming while I was away. Um, so I don't know that I'll ne- like now that I'm home. I don't know that I'll necessarily continue with what I was doing, but I, uh, I took my switch with me to Japan and I took all of my games as well. Uh, just because I knew that like, aside from the flight and everything, uh, I knew that I would be spending a lot of time on trains. Um, in some cases I'd be spending several hours on trains. Um, so I thought, uh, you know, it's good to have just in case. Um, and I probably, I probably played the Switch really once while I was in Japan and then mostly on the flight home uh, because flying back always sucks. So, um, And the funny thing is, like, I took all my games, I, I played a little bit of Smash, but I found myself going back to Zelda and spending a lot of time in Zelda, especially on the flight. Um... And it ended up being like I was playing it on uh, master mode, so I was sort of, I think, when I when I kind of jumped into it, I'd played already for a couple of hours in master mode, so I'd unlocked you know a little bit of the map. I hadn't really done very much before I put it down, um, and then on the plane, I kind of unlocked most of the map, and I did the first divine beast, and um, you know by the time I kind of put the switch down. Um, a huge chunk of the flight was gone, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I was, I was kind of trying to think back to why did I end up gravitating to that game? You know, apart from the fact it's an amazing game. Right. Um, you know, Smash is a lot newer and I'm loving Smash and everything. And I think a big part of it was just the fact that because you can really go at your own pace in Zelda... Um, you know, you're not, there's kind of no pressure. So if I was really tired or I was uncomfortable or whatever on the plane, I didn't necessarily have to jump into like a big battle or, you know, like smash where you've kind of really got to be switched on the whole time you're playing. I could just turn the switch on and just wander and explore and kind of end up playing it for an hour or two and not really doing much, you know, not really having accomplished much in terms of the main goals of the game. Um, and that's what made it really, really good for travel. Um, but as I say, now that I'm home, I mean, I'll probably go on with Dragon Quest uh, Eleven, and, you know, that there's other stuff that, um, that I, that I want to play that that's newer. Um, but that turned out to be really, really handy for travel. That that's pretty cool. Um, 
Man, I'm also excited about Dragon Quest XI. I want to maybe play two more old ones and then do eleven. Uh, Breath of the Wild is such a good game, James. I just like it a lot. <laughs> it's we yeah, talk about it I, enough I, on the show, but we do. <laughs> but you know, there's a there's a good reason. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I mean, I guess I don't know. My original file, I'd put God maybe 170 hours or some ridiculous number into it yeah more than any other game for many many years um but since i put it down i I hadn't played it really at all for months um so picking it up again on the plane i just i kind of got sucked into it again straight away and even after all those hours of playing it before i did actually come across an area in the game maybe i'd just forgotten it but I came across an area where I remember thinking, hang on, I don't think I've seen this before. What the hell is this? What was it? So, oh, it was like a, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's, it's kind of a, it's an area that's slightly southeast of the main kind of Hyrule field near the castle. Okay. Um, and it's got like, it's got multiple of those big kind of rock skull formations with tar pits all around it. Oh. Um, and it's... Yeah. yeah. I think I... I I might have been there... I know what you're talking about. I might have been there, like, twice ever in a 300-hour yeah. <laughs> time with the game. Yeah. That's right. And I somehow, like, I stumbled upon it, and I'm like... I was kind of exploring it and thinking, I, I don't remember seeing giant skulls like with tar pits all around them. Like, what the hell is this? Yeah, because correct so me if I'm that, wrong. That but was there's, really cool. there's nothing so critical there. There's I don't think there's a shrine. Um, no, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, there's no shrine, and there's really no like I think you can get some. You know, there's a chest or two there to get some items, but there's nothing really pivotal or important there. But um, it was. From a distance, it just kind of looked like a like a little hill. But as I got closer and realized there's actually all these, like, you know, there's a there's kind of a, a mezzanine floor inside one of these skulls with multiple enemies in there. And there's like ramps going in multiple directions around it. Um, it turned out to be this whole little interesting, intricate area that I had never seen. So that was pretty cool. That is cool. Um, just to wrap up a, a, a prolonged playtime report, uh, I've still been playing Smash Brothers, and I've okay. So James, get this: I did every challenge on the challenge board. <laughs> yeah. Got all of those. They're done. I wow. got so there are a total of now there's one thousand three hundred and two spirits. Um, I'm almost there. I've got one thousand three hundred and one. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Uh, the, the, That's awesome. The spirit I'm missing is the partner Eevee spirit, uh, which you get for having save data from Pokemon Let's Go Eevee on your Switch. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's the only one. That's the oh only my... one I'm missing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've also oh, unlocked every me costume and every song. And... I'm I'm kind of just like waiting until there's a person in my life that has Pokemon Let's Go Eevee and then I'm stealing it. Um that that's my <laughs> that's my uh, new strategy. 
I feel pretty content <laughs> with where I am in the game, being that I just can, kept unlocking everything. And man, the people that say that there's a lack of single player content are out of their goddamn minds. <laughs> there's so much to do in this game. Uh, yeah, I know it feels... I mean, I, I'm nowhere near where you are, but even for the amount of time I played it, it, it kind of feels never-ending. Like, it feels massive. It, it is massive. It's absolutely massive. My, my current goal is much less completionist. I'm trying to get around uh, around 3 million. If I can pass 3 million, I'll, I'll be pretty happy with myself. Uh, on the GSP, the Global Smash Power, on the Quick Play rankings. Because while I was doing all that single-player stuff, I really wasn't practicing being good at the game against other people. Uh, yeah. So now I'm just trying to get good at it, and I'm, I'm playing Pokemon Trainer as my new main. Um, throwing every other character away, I can only have one a character. Otherwise, I, I'll forget what I'm doing. And I just want to get good. I just kind of want to get good. And I feel like I'll never feel like i'm good enough which is great and also sad <laughs> um there, there will be things to do in the game regarding um progress and it'll always just be feeling like you're better and better at smash which means that if i'm there i imagine a lot of my friends that are more single player oriented that don't invest themselves in multiplayer games too often are nearly done with it um yeah which is a bit sad because there's so much in this game yeah, definitely. Um, I'm actually wondering, like, so, because I played, I only played a couple of matches online. Right. Are you, like, are you playing a lot online? Um, I've been playing maybe, for the last couple weeks, the last few weeks maybe, I've been playing maybe mm. just an average of maybe 45 minutes per day. Uh, just trying to grind some stuff out. Usually it's not every day, though. Usually it's just like a couple hours every few days, though. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, trying to, just trying to learn how people online are playing. And people seem to be getting better every week. Mm. Because before, at the yeah. beginning of the game, they, they were chumps. Like, I was almost at 3 million easily. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I just, on accident, almost... People were just self-destructing off the side. Um, they were playing as <laughs> characters like King K. Rule and Pichu, who are cool but have these very obvious weaknesses that I don't think they see. Um, mm. And now, now they're all very good. Every character is is <laughs> like very very hard to play against online. Has the online experience improved at all in terms of like I? feel like i've been on another planet for a little while um yeah have they has nintendo sort of patched it or because when i played it and mind you like i'm playing it i'm i'm on a fast internet connection but i'm playing using wi-fi and my switch is essentially at one end of the house and my wi-fi modems at the other end so, you know, it, it kind of doesn't surprise me that I'm having, like, I was having some funny connection problems and I found it to be, I, I got like one match that was relatively smooth, but I had a few attempts that were just so bad um, that I ended up giving up. I thought it's just, just not smooth enough to really enjoy. 
Yeah, it was it was pretty bad for a while. Um, now, don't tell the Smash police, but I'm also playing on Wi-Fi. Um, my my Switch is closer to my Wi-Fi unit. It seems like mm. for everything, just in general, the Switch has a poorer connection to my Wi-Fi unit than my Xbox One does. For I I didn't realize that that was a a way that consoles could differ. Just not even internet like servers or anything or not even computational power inside the console just the tether between my wi-fi and mm. the the box is very different between the two things um but but to your question yeah. things have things have gotten better and i'm not sure how much of it is actually nintendo's fault i know a lot of it is just that if if you want to play to to really try to get better you're probably going to want to limit the amount of randomness and the amount of things in matches that can slow your connection down. So any instance of an item um, is is not only going to, like, just if it spawns near your opponent, that's unfair for you. Not only is it kind of going to upset the balance of the game, it will add another thing that the peer-to-peer connection between your, your switches need to think about. So if you play on like battlefield stages only no items which is what i do um you'll be fine and it looks like almost everyone in the smash community has kind of agreed on a a singular set of rules it's all no mm. items um you can pick battlefield stages or final destination stages depending on what you're trying to do you can mm. Uh, you you got to set time to seven minutes and stocks to three, and usually it doesn't go to seven minutes, but like the three stocks will be maybe a four minute match, and that's yeah. um, that's what everyone's done, and because all of those people that are kind of serious about it are also sometimes the people that w- will not just have like w- wireless connections that are so bad for reasons other than like what they can do with them themselves if if you know what i mean uh like those people are gonna have better internet connections anyway so when i'm playing with them it's almost flawless and you can make yourself play with them by by setting the preferred rules now what nintendo did do to their credit is they they put a little bit more emphasis on matching up people with the same preferred rules uh than what was happening at launch because what was happening at launch was you could say I want to play on Battlefield with no items, just like a standard, f- pretty fair balanced match. And then Nintendo's like, okay, well, we put you with five other people, and mm. <laughs> we're, we're adding all kinds of items, and let's play on New Pork City. Let's go. And yeah, they they did change the, the priority there, so I, I guess that's good. Um, still, though, not great, and... The ways that it's not great are pretty inexcusable. I like. I don't know why this is a problem for Nintendo. It seems like they could just look over their shoulder at any number of other companies and they'd find out how to do it right. But they just never. They just never do. <laughs> they just never <laughs> look over their shoulder. Yeah, and I, I um, and we'll. I'll, I'll mention it later. But uh, there is a. There is a brief mention of this in a Digital Foundry video, a recent one, and I believe there is something, there is some difference, and I don't know exactly what it is, um, in the actual 
switch hardware around the way it handles Wi-Fi that is a bit of a deficiency. Hmm. Um, so I for, just from what I gather, there's a there's obviously you know a software side to it that they can address, but there is a apparently um, a hardware side that is a limiting factor as well if you play wirelessly if you use wi-fi that that does make sense um but in general too long for playtime report i think it was good (laughs) and interesting and i had fun doing it but you know sometimes that's just that's just not a good that's just not good pod so let's move on to the newsy nibble So, first order of news is uh, bad news, and it is that EA has announced that the open-world Star Wars game um, is now cancelled again. Now, if, mm-hmm. if, if you're wondering, wait, didn't they do that before? Yeah, like three times. And this is, this is really seeming like the end, like finally the end, because every time they've done it, well, it's it's gone back a long way, James. Uh, the first time that this game, in any kind of sense, existed, was the game Star Wars thirteen thirteen that everyone kind of loved. Um, it was a game made by Lucas Arts or or uh, Lucas Games, I think Lucas Arts, and that was before Disney bought the Star Wars brand, and George Lucas himself was involved. Although he delayed it coming out by forcing them to put Boba Fett in it, which you can find out more about in the great book by Jason Schreier, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. And then once Disney bought the Star Wars brand, they they uh, disbanded LucasArts. They just the studio was completely thrown away. And they gave the rights to publishing Star Wars games to EA, who then absorbed some of that old 1313 staff and assets to that game and tried to work on a new kind of different game with Amy Hennig. Uh, But that's not even the one that was just canceled. That was canceled a while ago. And Amy Hennig is just off doing something else. Uh, She's, if you're unfamiliar with the name, she worked on the uh, original few Uncharted games. And then a different kind of thing <laughs> was uh, done with Vicarious Visions, who I I think is now not a company anymore, not a studio anymore. EA shut them down too. And finally, it's just like they kept saying, "Oh, we're not doing this, but we're doing this kind of other thing using that old stuff." Now it's just done. They finally said we're not doing it. Uh, woof. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my understanding is when, at the point in time where Amy Hennig was working on it, it was being developed by Visceral, who did the Dead Space games. Oh man, yeah, you're uh, right. I I said Vicarious Visions. I meant Visceral. Uh, I get those mixed up. Well, the the thing that I found interesting is they were so when they were working on it, they were apparently sort of focusing on like a a more linear kind of story-based adventure game that was um well there there was some there was some comment at a point in time that basically said it's kind of spiritually related to to uncharted yeah uh, and it's going to have that much stronger story you know plot emphasis um it's it's interesting that at at some stage i'm not sure when uh, EA 
basically came in, they upended the tea table and said, well, first of all, um, we're going to move development of the game away from Visceral to EA Vancouver. And EA Vancouver, um, I'm sure they have staff that have kind of worked at different projects at different studios over the years. But when you look at EA Vancouver's history, they kind of predominantly made titles that were published under EA Sports. Yeah. So they're, I mean, I don't know what all the internal conversations were, but just on, on its face, it was an interesting choice to go from Visceral to EA Vancouver. I mean, they're um, all interesting choices, James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, see, the problem with a podcast is you can't see my air quotes every time I say that. Uh, <laughs> but they, so they made, they didn't just change developer, but they then said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, we're, we're effectively going to kill the linear story-based adventure game and change it to this bigger kind of non-linear open world experience right. because and, the, and i there seemed to be some sort of I multiplayer think, aspect in the new or the newest the latest version of it as well that made a lot yeah, of people think and, maybe it's destiny adjacent and this is the thing that like the thing that i find weird about this again just based on the reporting i've seen uh is so ea were the ones that made this decision to change it into this open world game yeah. because Apparently, you know, by their own admission, their own comments at the time, that was kind of the big trend that they wanted to jump on. Mm -hmm. So they were thinking about it from that perspective. They then decide now that oh no, that's taking way too long to build a giant open world Star Wars game. Surprise, surprise. That's taking way too long. We're now going to cancel that project and pivot to something else that, you know, we we hope to release much sooner. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's been mentioned somewhere, but have they said what type of game they're pivoting to on their, what, third or fourth pivot with this project? You mean with this one? Yeah. No, it's canceled. They're done. They don't, it's, there is no more the game. Oh, but the, this, this game's canceled. But what I mean is <laughs> I thought, <laughs> No, I know what you mean. I thought but this what they time, were saying, yeah. This time it feels different. This time it actually seems like there is no more game. But I thought they were working on... I thought they were basically saying, we're going to now take these resources. We're going to take these people and have them work on something else that'll come out a lot sooner. There's some other project Star Wars related oh, that I've been working on. I see what you're, what you're thinking about. You're thinking about... Um... The, their respawn studio is working on Jedi Fallen Order, um, which is oh, okay. an unrelated game, other than also being Star Wars and also being EA. Mm -hmm. um, but it's now yeah. EA's only Star Wars project. Um, which, yeah, I don't know, man. You're 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 right <laughs> to say that they were chasing trends. I totally feel that. Um, like maybe. When when they were because their their latest one was transitioning to like a Destiny kind of thing, and then Destiny didn't do well. Like Destiny Two is not like blowing the world up right now. Well, I mean we'll get to that, um, but <laughs> and and then things like Red Dead Redemption Two, and Spider Man and uh, God of War, are so. 
like what do you do with that what do you if you're ea you're thinking like well i i chased that trend and that trend seems to be done Mm. like i knew i need a new trend so i guess now (laughs) you would make just a standard single player game but or or a Fortnite thing i guess um like a battle royale type deal oh god yeah but in either case it's just like the, the the problem is that you didn't finish the game like i so many of of these of these games out there right now are trying to chase trends and trying to like say hey we're related to that other game that you like in in x y or z way but ea had the solution to that and they never used it which is just that it's it's star wars like people will yes, buy it yes it doesn't that, matter. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, if you put aside everything else, put aside the trends, because, of course, most games take so long to develop that if you're in the business of chasing a trend, like the crest of the wave has already passed. Yeah. You know, you're, you're surely you're in the business of, if, if nothing else, you're in the business of anticipating trends, not chasing trends. I don't know how you chase trends in game development. Unless your turnaround for for developing a game is like twelve months or less, yeah, yeah. Um, but well, I think EA wants aside, that though. Like, I I think in in their minds, this is the only thing I can rationalize them thinking because yeah. everything else doesn't make sense. I think in their minds, they said we make Madden every year, we make FIFA every year. Well, we we can take Star Wars and do Star Wars every year, but of course that doesn't work because that's just contradictory to what you, the tone you would expect out of a star wars game is you'd think it should be big and adventurous and like have a whole big scope to it that isn't that doesn't feel annual in any way well um, and, and this is the part it. i really don't get because even if that's their thinking mm-hmm. which is you know it has obvious there are obvious issues with that way of thinking but what they could do and what i'm surprised that they're apparently not doing is I mean, I look at a game like Red Dead Redemption 2 or even GTA 5 as a template for this. Wouldn't you, you know, you've got to roll a boulder uphill first, right? You've got to do that big first release and get your your foundation ready. So wouldn't you build your big open world Star Wars game? You create this universe that people want to visit and want to be in. And once you've got that platform established... You then do your whatever, your annualized roadmap of major DLC or, you know, your World of Warcraft model or whatever, where you've got the foundation of this fantastic world and you've, you you know, you made that investment, but you make it this long term world that people can live in that keeps changing. I mean, I feel like that was supposed to be Battlefront. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. But um, in my mind, that's the. If I were making a Star Wars game and I had unlimited budget, that's kind of the angle I'd be taking because it's just so it's so perfect for you know being this world that that kind of sees these live updates and constant changes, and it's just the perfect franchise for that. If that you know, if you do it well. It, it is, yeah, because you can just say there's a new planet and it's got new exactly. stuff in it and it's yep. like 
maybe they, they they find out where Obi-Wan Kenobi was born and they go there and it's full of people that look exactly like Ewan McGregor and like you can just do that <laughs> and people would be stoked yeah. but they don't yeah. <laughs> like they don't they, yeah. they're so they're so against it it seems like they're so against it I don't know if I was Disney I'd be pissed because it it seems like Disney just realized that they didn't have a very strong video game publishing arm. So they saw EA, which they intuited did have a strong publishing arm and, and trusted them. And I think their trust has been uh, completely violated. Especially because Marvel's doing so well. Like, that Avengers game that yeah. Square Enix is doing, I bet it's going to be good. I bet that... I mean, I mean I'm sure they're so happy even though sony published it with the the spider-man thing just boosting the recognition of spider-man um yeah yeah and making deals with nintendo for ultimate alliance 3 and everything and then star wars is just stuck in this rut uh (laughs) yeah yeah it's yeah and it's it's just such a gift like you know i know ea are the ones that have to go and and spend the money and the time to make the game and publish it but you know, games and movies now are so much about franchises and to to effectively be given that gift of Star Wars. I the mean, biggest Star franchise. Wars of anything. Yeah. Exactly. Like the biggest franchise. And it's not like it's not like you look at Star Wars and say, you know, this lends itself to one particular style of game. I mean, there are a million different kinds of ex- Star Wars experiences you could create. Yeah, you in could any have setting. Your, in, in any setting, that's right. Like, you know, they could be doing everything from the huge scale open world online thing to much, much smaller kind of arcade-like experiences on many different platforms. It's just, it's so wide open for, for cool ideas. Um, I just don't know what they're doing. So I was listening to the Easy Allies podcast, and they were talking about this. And I, I don't like to listen to podcasts so uh, so soon before I record our podcast because I don't want to, like, crib their talking points or anything. But um, Kyle Bossman and Brandon Jones from that podcast were talking about how if you were Respawn right now, you would be terrified. It, you should be yeah. absolutely mortified that at any moment this game that you've clearly been working on since Titanfall 2 came out like that's almost two years now it's just going to be cancelled out of hand by EA just immediately mm. with no reason <laughs> with no with no warning or EA is just going to come in and say hey this is great uh, but what if you what if you need to pay for every character <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah and they'll that's just right. They'll just have to do it. They'll they'll just have to say like, I mean, I don't want that, but sure, you you're the one that makes the call. Yeah. Do you yeah. think? Hey guys, we've got this great idea. <laughs> yeah, I love what you're doing with with the shooting and the the lightsaber physics. It's it's fantastic. What if you had to buy it though? Uh, after you already <laughs> yeah. bought it three times over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you think Disney will rescind? the rights to Star Wars from EA anytime soon. Oh, that that's such a good question. I mean, this could be a really loaded statement, but I'll make it anyway. Okay. I get the impression. I get the general impression. Like, there are some companies that 
have respect for their franchises and there are some that don't so <laughs> yeah. you know in the gaming in in the gaming world nintendo has great respect for their creations sega doesn't right sure in the um th- that's just the, the ba- basic reality right what a hot take um, i didn't ask for but i love it <laughs> i love it but and i get i mean this i know there's some individual controversial decisions but in general i get the sense that that disney is pretty serious about their franchises like they're you know they they don't seem to be in the position of yeah uh you know just constantly throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks they seem to be fairly careful and strategic about their decisions so to see ea kind of writhing around on the floor in this hot mess in the corner mm-hmm. um i don't know what their contractual agreement is with disney but surely at some point disney's going to step in and say you know this is our franchise that you're kind of trashing all over the place there comes a time where we've we've kind of hit the limit and we need to pull the plug yeah i i wonder if pre and post Honestly, I think pre and post Spider-Man PS4 are are different worlds for Disney. If I was yeah. in that position, I would I would see the success of Spider-Man and say, "Hey, this is the best-selling western developed game in Japan ever. This is the this is such an influential game that it has now like mattered more to the branding of Spider-Man than Homecoming, the movie that we did that we worked on did. And maybe maybe that could send some messages up up to Disney like, hey, games can matter a lot if you do it right and you really yeah. think about what you're doing it doing as you're doing it. And we're not doing that with, with Star Wars at all. Maybe they maybe they were fine with EA kind of just like messing up Star Wars because they were like, well, you know, it's video games. It's just, I mean, we're, we're making movies and that's a different thing. But after Spider-Man, I don't think you could make that argument very well. Um, it's, mm. it's a completely yeah. different world. I would love to see Disney make a, a clean break w- with EA, but then like, who do you give it to? Like, who... Because they still can't do it themselves. Maybe Activision, they... Well, here's a segue. Activision's got, (laughs) like, a lot less on their plate right now. Maybe they could do it. Uh, Bungie has reabsorbed all (laughs) Destiny publishing rights from Activision. Uh, It's a clean break. Activision retains nothing at all. Wow, right? Did you expect this? I so so didn't. I thought this was (laughs) impossible. I so didn't. I... I mean, one thing that was becoming really clear over the last few months is we, I mean, we always knew the relationship between Activision and Bungie was, was fraught with issues from day one, but the last few months that feud between the companies started to spill out into public. And I think the most obvious example was when, and I don't remember the exact language, but Activision were effectively saying that Destiny 2 and Destiny 2 Forsaken in particular was underperforming uh, according to their their targets mm-hmm. and you know there was a there was a pretty I think there was a pretty negative implication around it because they weren't saying anything redeeming at all right um they were really just saying you know it hasn't hit the targets need need to do more need to find more ways of making money from this thing 
And I think it was Luke Smith, one of the directors at Bungie, came out on Twitter and basically said, well, actually, it's doing pretty well and we're pretty proud of it and, and players love it. And, you know, we want to continue kind of listening to, to players and, and making the games that they want to play. Um, and that was a really public kind of disagreement between, you know, a really senior person at Bungie and, and Activision. Um, so it seemed like there was going to come a crunch time where something was going to happen. I guess my worry all like all the way through was that Activision may be the one to kind of end the contract and they may take, take ownership of the destiny franchise uh, and, and leave Bungie with their other project. Um, I don't know how far along it is, but Bungie are working on something else on, on a different franchise. Um, they have been at least for the last few months right um to be clear so i i just yeah uh to be, to be clear activision never owned destiny and i, th I think a lot of people yes uh don't don't really understand that they owned publishing rights to destiny which if yes in, in another example that our audience might be familiar with um Nintendo currently owns publishing rights to new games in Bayonetta. They don't own Bayonetta. Sega owns Bayonetta. And Platinum mm. makes Bayonetta, but Nintendo owns publishing rights. Um, now, with with, with, yeah. with Bungie, it's all them. And now they're, they're independent, which is what they wanted to be after uh, breaking up with Microsoft. Mm. And... It, it seemed like when they approached Activision for, for publishing, Activision was, was excited because they were like, hey, we're getting Halo. And Bungie, Bungie wasn't. They, they were maybe pretty upset that they had to go from a company that just gained its independence to once again making a game for a publisher. And now they're, they're just not that. And I this time I don't see them... I don't see them approaching another publisher. I think they're independent for a while. What do they have to do yeah, now? Well, how are they going to be? How are they going to be? Are they cool? Are they fine? Bungie, I mean. Well, oh, I think so. I think so. They, for, for two reasons, like, so they, they there's going to be a period of handover between Activision and Bungie because I think Bungie, I think Budgie went to Activision initially, not just for investment, but also because publishing is hard. Development is hard, but publishing at a at a high, at a large scale is also difficult. Right. And they didn't have any publishing expertise. They they were effectively buying that expertise or you know gaining that from Activision. Um, so there's a period of handover now where Activision will slowly hand over all the kind of publishing responsibilities to Bungie. Uh, Bungie will have some important decisions to make around publishing, including distribution channels and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I think Bungie will be a lot better off because one, they're, they're gaining independence around publishing, which will be hard but necessary. And also um, they had, I think it was last year, um, they another big investor came in a chinese company called netease came in and invested a hundred million dollars right into bungie last year um so bungie have i get the sense that bungie have kind of been preparing themselves financially to take on this franchise 
you know, completely end to end and probably to develop something else as well. Um, I believe now they're, if, if they're not the biggest, they would be one of the biggest independent development companies in the game industry. So Destiny 1 started development as something Bungie really wanted to do for themselves. And then Activision came in uh, with that release after it was already in development. And then Destiny 2 seems to a lot of people to be much more of a collaboration between Activision and Destiny in terms of like making it the kind of game both parties could, could tolerate it being for themselves. And so now Bungie's just left with this game, Destiny 2, that people expect them to work on still that what was made with a bedfellow who's no longer in the picture um if i were them i would maybe recommend killing destiny 2 prematurely but i know people got so mad when destiny 1 uh died before it was supposed to whenever it was supposed to it was supposed to be a 10-year game and obviously that didn't happen um Will will this move speed up the release of Destiny 3, do you think? Or whatever well, comes next? Yeah, it's interesting because it was... A, it was a, The original agreement was for Bungie to release four Destiny games and four expansions between 2013 and 2020. And I think where they first really ran into trouble is that the original Destiny... Uh, the development lagged really significantly. So it, I think they were about a year late, uh, you know, based on their own targets and agreements with Activision around timeframes. They were about a year late. So once they lost that year, they started to, and you could see it over time, they really started to run into a lot of trouble because by the time Destiny 2 came around, just the vanilla release, um, I gather that they only had about a year, maybe a little bit more, to work on Destiny 2 from scratch. Um, and so when Destiny 2 was released, it was definitely quite a different game than the original. It was definitely much more catered toward, I guess, um, newcomers or you know, casual players, that sort of thing. But in my mind, that that wasn't really its biggest problem. Its biggest problem was just lack of endgame content, which is kind of where the meat of the Destiny experience is. Mm -hmm. And I think they were just always, they were just always kind of caught behind the eight ball because the first two expansions for Destiny Two were really pretty average, um, you know, in terms of quality and content. It was only when Forsaken came along that Destiny 2 really started to feel um, I think people were starting to say this is what we expected like this is the level of of quality and volume of content that we really expected um, but that's so, so recent of, right so so recent exactly do you keep um, up with that or do you do you maybe think well Destiny 2 was was a product of, of a, a poor collaboration and, and move on quickly. I think, well, so we know what Bungie are going to do next. We know that Bungie, their current roadmap, which I think goes to the end of this year, uh, their current roadmap 
that they're planning to fulfill that. So they're not planning to make any major changes around that with Destiny 2. The big question is what happens after that. And I I don't really know what I prefer, but I think I think I would rather them stick with Destiny 2 for longer, forget Destiny 3 for now, and really focus on building Destiny 2 because they've got a really great foundation with it. Um, and Forsaken dramatically improved the experience and expanded it. Um, I I don't know that the next big Destiny needs to kind of be like a numbered, uh, you know, a numbered release that kind of starts the clock again. I, I feel like they should maybe just keep expanding what they have with Destiny 2. That makes sense to me. Uh, we have one more news item and this is just kind of a, a a small thing netflix says that its biggest competition is not uh any any other streaming device it's uh fortnite fortnite is the biggest competition to netflix and i just before we start talking about it, I, I wanted your take on that how do you feel about that as a concept uh not remotely surprised <laughs> Um, yeah, Nintendo have been saying this for years, not about Fortnite, but when people talk about competitors, there are obviously direct competitors that are in your specific field, in your lane. But really, if you think about all of these companies, what they're competing for is your screen time. Sure. You know, you you work and eat and sleep and you've got some screen time in between. They're all fighting for the screen time. So to the extent that Fortnite just you know, um, absorbs like a sponge people's spare time, then by definition they're taking away that time or they're denying that time from everybody else, including the Nintendos and, and you know, any other publisher in the world and companies like Netflix. Do you think, though, that they're going to do anything about it? <laughs> like, to me, this sounds like Netflix just <laughs> says this and then they like wait it out they just keep doing what they're doing they understand their biggest competition is fortnite but they don't really they're not going to make a game i don't think they're not gonna no compete against fortnite no i mean no and i don't think i mean the answer for them wouldn't be to make a game i think i mean it sounds really trite to say it but like the answer is just to keep leaning into the things they do really really well that are different from Fortnite. right um you know like keep making really awesome exclusive content you know keep giving people reasons to to watch netflix um i you know i know that sounds simple it's obviously not but i feel like that's what it comes down to at the end of the day right i i think that's true um Right, source for this news item, by the way, is from Polygon. There's an article by Matt Patches entitled, Netflix says Fortnite is bigger competition than HBO or Hulu. Hmm. And yeah, uh, I I get it. There, There's just not enough time in a day for, for all of your things. To me, Netflix is such a... Uh, it's, like a way smaller part of my life than it used to be. I remember when mm. I, uh, I guess maybe five or six years ago, I, w I was watching Netflix just all the time, watching any old movie I could find. 
not old movies, sometimes old movies, but just like any anything I could find. There was a ton of independent movies I've never heard of before that were like recommended because I liked this other movie. And I was like, yeah, Netflix has not done me wrong yet. And now it, mm. their their content seems gone. Uh, like there there's a lot fewer movies showing up on Netflix and many more Netflix originals, which was cool for a time. But now the Netflix originals don't seem like they don't seem great anymore where mm. it, at, at the beginning they were all fantastic. Um, yeah. They've struck out a lot with Netflix originals. And now I just don't even know what to think of that service. This is just me kind of, vamping on netflix they didn't do anything to, to deserve that uh <laughs> i don't know well it's kind of the it's kind of the reverse for me because initially uh, at least here in australia netflix really sucked initially like we and, and uh, you know i think the issue for a long period of time was that uh if if you're a content distributor or a publisher you know you have to have you have to have a, a different agreement for different territories. So I was looking at what Netflix had in the States and thinking, oh man, that's so cool. I wish we had that. What we had was um, we still had a lot of franchises and, and properties that were being distributed by like traditional television networks or like a whole host of different companies. And quite often that meant that... Um, you know, for a lot of series, we weren't getting them as soon as they were released in the US. We were getting them way later because they were, you know, they would appear on our free-to-air TV networks and that those networks would promote them for what felt like months in advance before they would come out. Yeah. Apparently, a lot of those agreements lapsed or whatever because Netflix has grown much bigger and and um has a much much better range now in Australia than they did only a couple of years ago so they it feels like i don't know what their numbers are but it feels like they're kind of heating up a lot here but on the other hand Fortnite's massively popular here as well yeah. so <laughs> there's there's like no Fortnite free zones i think for them I, for for me i i've been way more satisfied and pleasantly surprised with what's going on on Hulu than yeah. anything on Netflix, Hulu's grown so so much in terms of what kinds of things they have. Now, the the downside to Hulu is that you can get a subscription and pay for it, and still have to watch a commercial, many commercials actually yeah. during the show. Um, yeah, that's not video games. <laughs> uh, you can write into this terrible podcast at podcast at superjumpmagazine dot com. I got some very interesting emails, uh, but they are all spam. So if you would like to introduce some non-spam emails to that email address, that's podcast at superjumpmagazine.com, podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. Feel free to do so. Uh, you might be read on the show, unless you specify that you don't want that. Let's head into our after-school activities! <laughs> I got one I'm really excited about, James. Um, it's a new podcast I found. It's by Adam Conover, mm -hmm. who is from the internet series and TV show Adam Ruins Everything. Mm -hmm. uh, he's started a new podcast uh, where he goes behind the scenes with people who make 
video games, which um, is something a lot of podcasters have been trying to do for a while, but I think you kind of need a little bit of star power in order to just, like, get names consistently to show up on your show. Uh, he did it. Yep. He It's out, and his first episode is is out, and it's with Edmund McMillan from Team Meat, from Super Meat Boy, Binding of Isaac, um, Gish. I'm, I'm sure you've played an Ed Mc, Edmund McMillan game sometime in your life without noticing it or realizing it. Um, but if you knew the name, you probably did immediately n- notice or realize it because his style is so unique and specific. Adam talks with Edmund about all that stuff in a really, really good interview. The podcast, again, is called Humans Who Make Games. Uh, check it out when wherever you get your podcasts. But, but, this is important. Mm-hmm. This is really important. I don't know what day of the week those come out on. So if those come out on the same day of the week as our show, you have to listen to ours first. It's really important that you do that. Uh, just, you know, common courtesy kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, James, what is your after-school activity? Oh, I struggled with this one this this time, but um, I and I've recommended these guys a few times, but I'm going to recommend another Digital Foundry video, uh, just because they've got a new video out around six hardware upgrades they want to see on a new Nintendo Switch, and and you know as you know, and probably as everybody knows by now, there have been a whole lot of reports about um, a potential hardware revision for the Switch coming out later this year. Right. Um, You know, probably not a next-gen console or anything, just kind of a a version 2 of the Switch, effectively. Um, And what I like about this video is, like, everybody's got their lists of what they want to see, but this is, like, this is a really realistic list based on you know what nintendo could feasibly do um they kind of look at the the hardware roadmap for the tegra chip that's inside the switch so they kind of say here's what we want to happen and here's what's kind of likely to happen um and as usual it's amazing like everything they do is is awesome cool uh i'll have to check that out i'm excited about that so that's been our show um sorry about the delay in getting this episode out to you i was at a wedding for one of those weeks and another i just couldn't get any anyone on the show um that's you know we're, we're doing better about getting regular episodes but that's kind of still how it's always going to be um pretend we planned a new year's hi- hiatus just pretend we, we already meant to do it and then i'm sure it'll be a much more palatable absence so our theme song has been Jamatar. Please subscribe, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, whatever you want to do. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, James, is it at Super Jump Magazine? Uh, it's at Super Jump Online. Hang on, let me just really quickly check what our actual <laughs> Twitter address is. Um, I'm sure if you, uh, if you I, Google Super Jump and look for an appropriately blue icon, uh, <laughs> you'll find it. And you will definitely find it's it. It's got a Facebook page, and the magazine it- <laughs> itself, of course, exists on Medium, and that's at uh, superjumpmagazine.com is, is a shortcut to there. So thanks for listening, and stay, stay super! <laughs>